What's more difficult than guessing what goes on behind the walls of the Kremlin? Well, guessing what goes on in Pyongyang. The leader of one of the planet's most reclusive regimes made a rare trip abroad last September to neighboring Russia. Then it was Western claims of uh, North Korean munitions winding up on the uh, battlefield in Ukraine. Now it's more. A Wasal-2 cruise missile uh, fired into the sea on Tuesday, seen by some as the usual saber-rattling in response to annual military exercises by the South. But this time, is it testing the goods for export to Russia? Moscow's invasion of Ukraine has triggered sanctions and a prolonged war effort that have drawn Vladimir Putin closer to Western pariah Iran. So how about North Korea? A chance for Pyongyang to break its international isolation? And what consequences for Seoul? On that score, we'll ask about the tensions between the two Koreas, tensions currently on the up. Today in the France 24 debate, we're looking at North Korea's ties with Russia. Joining us from London, Hazel Smith, professor at SOAS University, author of North Korea, Markets and Military Rule. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. From New York City, Gordon Chang, author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World and China is Going to War. Thank you for being with us as well. Thank you. From St. Andrews in Scotland, Catherine Jones, lecturer at the University of St. Andrews. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really honored to be among the company you've, got, you've assembled for this evening. It's not over yet. We also have Pierre-Antoine Donnet, former senior editor at the French news agency AFP, who uh, was a one-time Beijing correspondent. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. The, uh, your reactions on the hashtag F24Debate. Yeah, this was the third missile launch in under a week for North Korea. Tuesday's test announcement of a Wasal-2 missile intended, according to the official communique, to check the Korean People's Army's, quote, rapid counterattack posture and improve its strategic striking capability. Seoul the previous day had detected the firing of multiple uh, cruise missiles off its western coast, the Wasal-2. Uh, with a nuclear-capable range of up to 2,000 uh, kilometers. 2,000 kilometers, just to give an idea, is uh, enough uh, to hit uh, U.S. military bases in, in Japan. Uh, Hazel Smith, um, when it comes to tensions with North Korea, the world is, never knows whether or not to be alarmed uh, when it comes to these missile tests. Uh, what do you make of the latest? Well, with the greatest respect, sometimes the, I'm not saying France 24 does this, but sometimes the media does prefer the sensationalist aspects of uh, North Korea reporting. And I think that it's not just the fact that North Korea is, of course, an isolated country, although it's not very isolated compared to China and Russia, and that its uh, propaganda outfits say the most ridiculous things. But we, but we all know that um, North Korea always provides a good story. So I think we have to look between that behind that 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 um, that, that that front and, and see what's going on and what we see uh, if even if we look back the last two years is that there has been a worrying militarization of the whole of the Korean Peninsula since the new president in South Korea uh, took office nearly a couple of years ago we've seen um, and from their perspective quite understandably uh, a drawing together in a way that we haven't seen in a, in a very very long time if if not in terms of the since the, the consolidation of South and North Korea's separate states in the 40s and 50s, of an alliance between South Korea, Japan, and the United States. Now, Japan and 
South Korea and North Korea have had terrible relations over the past 70 years because of Japanese colonialism. Uh, and, and what the current president has done in South Korea is very successfully brought together uh, Japan uh, with the United States, and they've been conducting military, air, and and land exercises for nearly two years. At the same time, you know whether it's in reaction or not, it doesn't really matter, does it? Uh, we've seen North Korea that's expanding its um, or trying to expand its military capabilities. Hence, you see this testing of the missiles and everything else. And at the same time, we've seen geopolitical relations change vastly with the Ukraine war, uh, when Russia uh, is looking for support from wherever it can get it and is much more reckless, um, has been much more reckless in geopolitical terms uh, than we've seen it before. Um, so you get those 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 geopolitics coming together with the domestic politics in South Korea and in North Korea, plus um, the relationships between the United States and, and China hardening, although now they're improving a bit. And you, you, you've got a, a pretty dangerous situation. Now, having said that, we've had dangerous situations in uh, on the Korean Peninsula at least since the end of the Cold War and before, uh, and there's been some management of them. So, yes, it's a tricky situation, uh, but there are some really important um, political dynamics, which we, which I think we should be analysing rather than just look at the weirdness, the so-called weirdness of North Korea. Yeah, and uh, uh, Pierre-Antoine Donnet, uh, interesting point there made by, by Hazel Smith. We're, we're focused on Pyongyang. But yeah, it's true that uh, you have uh, a more nationalist government in Seoul and a more nationalist government in Tokyo than before. That's right, that's right. Um, what to say, Hazel has said almost everything, but what I could add is that um, actually behind the scene there is China. Uh, China is using proxies including North Korea and also Russia. So to you, you're saying you're saying China acts uh, is pulling the strings. North Korea is not acting on its own. Well, it's obvious that uh, without the blessing of China, North Korea couldn't do anything. Uh, even the fact that uh, Kim Jong Un is, is very difficult to control. Uh, uh, North Korea is very much dependent on on the aid of uh, China and also Russia. Catherine Jones, do you agree? I think I might tentatively slightly disagree with the with the analysis of um Pierre Donnet there. Um partly because um I think it's in, in the millions of tons that of food aid that North Korea needs each year. And one of the things that comes out of the geopolitical dynamics that Hazel has has illustrated is is China actually going to cut off any of that assistance? I mean, one of the pieces of analysis that came out in foreign affairs in the last few few days or weeks actually suggests that maybe North Korea has greater liberty to do testing of missiles because they are at much less fear of being abandoned or sanctioned or punished by its relationship with China. So... I think I think it's possible if we look. Why at, are they um, Why are they less uh, uh, fearful of that? Well, China and Russia have made big statements in the last year, two years, about pushing back against NATO, pushing back against the United States. 
if China were to cut off something to North Korea, then where does it leave China internationally? Um, other than the appearance, at the very least, um, that they're taking a US um, centric approach or a South Korean centric approach. So I think I think there's reason to go back to um, Hazel's call to sort of analyze the dynamics that we see. Um, and I think one reading of it is China is pulling North Korea's strings. I think maybe I would I would tentatively suggest that North Korea has more latitude to do testing um, right now because they are less concerned about an international backlash that they're not going to be protected from. Yeah, last week, North Korean media released images of Kim Jong-un watching the testing of a newly developed submarine-launched cruise missile called the Pulwasal uh, three, three, uh, one. And uh, reports suggest, Gordon Chang, this is for export to uh, the Russian market. Uh, the, this, this new uh, submarine-launched uh, 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 missile. Uh, so uh, North Korea is less isolated than in the past? Well, North Korea certainly has closer relations with Russia than it's did, had for, let's say, the last couple of years. And that, of course, is symbolized by what you mentioned, which was Kim Jong-un going to a base near Vladivostok last September to meet Vladimir Putin, where they obviously discussed a number of things, because since that meeting, we have seen the export of more than a million artillery shells from North Korea to Russia as well as the export of short-range ballistic missiles that Russia has used on the Ukraine battlefield. Um, but of course, um, Russia and China cooperate very closely, um, and China does have substantial influence over the North Koreans, even though the North Koreans, traditionally the Kim rulers, have had a closer relationship with the Russian counterparts than they have with the Chinese. But nonetheless, China is the dominant power in that relationship with Moscow. So when China wants something, it gets it. And this, is, I think, is best illustrated by Kim Jong-un making four straight trips to Chinese soil before Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, went to Pyongyang. And that says a lot about the power dynamics in that relationship, but you heard Catherine, which I think still exists. You heard Catherine saying that uh, they don't have to go quite as much cap in hand anymore, Pyongyang. Uh, to China? I think that they do because the internal situation inside North Korea is worse than usual, especially agricultural um, production. And that really means then that um, North Korea needs aid and assistance, and the Chinese, much more than the Russians, are able to provide that. So I think that uh, when the Chinese want something, they will ask and they will get it. They don't always ask, but when they want it, they get it. All right, two weeks ago, uh, North Korea's uh, foreign minister was welcomed to the Kremlin, uh, Cho Sonhui, who not only met uh, with her Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, but also with uh, President uh, Putin himself. Uh, that is just the latest meeting. And to hear North Korean state media tell it, Putin's already planning a trip to Pyongyang. Alright, 
so uh, uh, there you have it, uh, the, the uh, uh, newsreader from uh, North Korean state television, exactly what Hazel Smith didn't want us to show, uh, perhaps uh, saying, oh, look, uh, Russia wants us to help with their special military operation in Ukraine. Hazel, your reaction? Well, I think to go back to the to the broad lines here, rather than you know focus on the on the day to day minutiae of some announcers speaking in North Korea, which is always entertaining, of course. Um, the Russia and China have got a different strategic interest in terms of the relationship with North Korea and vice versa. North Korea doesn't really has historically not really trusted Russia, and before that, the Soviet Union or the Chinese. Um, but recently, um, it's been forced into a closer transactional relationship with Russia because, as one of your panelists has just um, has just mentioned, uh, they're pretty desperate for grain. They've had massive food shortages. Um, they recovered after the famine of the 1990s, which many of your viewers will know about, where probably about half a million people uh, were killed because of the famine. Agricultural production recovered, and then after the massive expansion of sanctions in 2016 and 17, uh, agricultural production reduced precipitously. It's a country of 26 million people, unlike a lot of countries that rely on uh, domestic food production, largely not imports. Um, and then, in although they had some food imports in 2020 and 2021 during the COVID years, North Korea closed its borders to China and it had almost no imports as uh, not, nothing substantive. And now it is requiring more imports uh, again from China. Russia has provided a little bit of aid, but it's not been a reliable trade partner for North Korea in the past. One of the significant things it did was that it cancelled Soviet debt, which was, then became Russian debt, North Korea's debt. So it did help North Korea in those terms. But its sustainable partner for North Korea, the, the, the major substantive partner for North Korea in economics has been China since uh, the last, since China became a developed power, so let's say in the last 15, 20 years or so. Russian trade is minuscule with North Korea, even before sanctions. And there's no sign that that's, um, that that's increasing substantially, although Chinese trade with North Korea is going up again. But what we are seeing... Um, and I think this has been alluded to, is that there's probably been a munitions deal uh, with North Korea, probably munitions for grain and more oil. Um, we saw the defence uh, minister of, uh, of North Korea, uh, sorry, of Russia, Mr Shoigu, visit uh, Pyongyang last summer. We saw the recent meeting of not just Kim Jong-un in uh, eastern Russia near Vladivostok, but with a sizable military entourage that, that he took. So that that that, but that's transactional. There's no, as far as the North Koreans are concerned, and the Russians, in fact, there's no substantive underlying interest, even strategic interest. Russia, on the whole, has intermittent concerns about its Far East, but it doesn't have the same concerns which China does. China has a thousand-mile border with North Korea. Russia has a ten-mile border. Beijing is close to North Korea. Moscow is thousands and thousands of miles, kilometers away from North Korea. They're completely different strategic interests. And also, it's true to say uh, that China has some influence economically on North Korea, but it can't tell the North Koreans what to do. If you talk to the Chinese officials and Russian officials, as I've done over the last 30 years, that go in and out of North Korea, the North Koreans treat them really badly. 
And the Chinese and Russian officials, on the whole, largely hate going in there for short or longer periods of time uh, because they're not treated very well. And certainly that one of the frequent refrains from colleagues or who are academics who've, who've, who've been in as diplomats as well is that they're just insulted. There's no gratitude for what for what either Russia or China is doing. So it's a it's a complicated relationship. Uh, economically, North Korea really does re- require Chinese support. China at the moment is not wholeheartedly supporting Russia either in Ukraine or anywhere else. In fact, it looks increasingly like it's making nice to to Mr. Biden. So we do we do have a a, 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 a situation where North Korea is in fact trying to, as it's done before, walk a diplomatic tightrope and where it's gaining some some short term gains, but it's not gaining it's not gaining substantive uh, gains in terms of having anything from Russia that's going to significantly improve its its economy. That said, it is a singular event that took place, like you say, thousands and thousands of kilometers away, and that is the February 2022 invasion of uh, Ukraine that perhaps uh, uh, has uh, changed the calculation. Last September, Kim Jong-un spending an entire week in Russia uh, visiting the uh, Vostoshny Cosmodrome uh, near Vladivostok, where Vladimir Putin talked up the possibility, the possibility of military ties. There was even a symbolic exchange of rifles between the pair and a tour of uh, a fighter jet factory. Uh, the uh, North Korean leader uh, who gushed. I firmly believe that the heroic Russian army and people will brilliantly inherit the tradition of victory and vigorously display their noble dignity and honor on the two frontiers of military operations and building a strong nation. There have really been two black swan moments. We've already referenced one, which was COVID, uh, which has hit ordinary North Koreans uh, hard in a way. And the second is the invasion of Ukraine and how suddenly perhaps that gives a lot more leverage to the North Korean regime. Right, right. <clears throat> Actually, um, I name uh, the four countries, North Korea, uh, Russia, China and Iran, the new gang of four. Uh, you know, the allusion to the uh, Chinese gang of four at the end of the Cultural Revolution. They share a common interest and the interest is actually a profound hate of United States and their allies. And uh, the bargain between uh, Russia and uh, North Korea is very simple. They trade, uh, North Korea is uh, delivering uh, uh, rockets and uh, uh, lots of armaments to, to Russia, and the Russian army uh, are lacking them more and more. And on the opposite side, uh, Russia is giving uh, uh, North Korea uh, knowledge about very sophisticated new armaments like airplanes, submarines, and also in the nuclear field. So, um, you know, they, they basically have uh, the same interest, countering uh, United States and their allies, mainly Japan and South Korea. And I would add... But, but the necessity goes beyond that now. You, you see, for uh, North Korea, uh, um, seeing how these missiles perform in uh, um, Ukraine, is for them very helpful because it's the first time they can see how they're efficient. And uh, in, on the actual battlefield, if it happens. If it happens. And then they, they could know how these missiles could uh, uh, answer South Korea. 
and uh, how they would be successful in case there is a war with South Korea. So this is actually uh, one of the main reasons why North Korea is delivering all these uh, missiles and rockets to, uh, uh, to Russia. Catherine Jones, you heard earlier Hazel Smith describe the current uh, level of trade between Russia and North Korea as minuscule. Is it said to remain so? Because the war in Ukraine is not about to end. But I think um, Ross, um, Hazel said it out very well in that there's a thousand miles of border versus 10 miles of border. Um, I think North Korea is still going to remain dependent on cereals, grain imports from China for the foreseeable future. Um, but I think there are other factors that need to be maybe teased out in terms of that dynamic relationship across that border. Um, Hazel pointed to a number of them. And then your question to Pierre about um, COVID is also important. Um, I think one of China's biggest interests is maintaining stability on the Korean Peninsula. I think that's been the same for a long time. So that's the same um, interest as the United States is what you're saying? Well, so yes, but also maybe not. It might be the same interest, but with a different mechanism for achieving it, um, a radically different mechanism for achieving it. Um, avoiding there being vast numbers of leaders sometimes called defectors, migrants, refugees flowing across that North Korean border into China is also an objective of China. So providing food aid and other assistance, including medicines, um, other humanitarian responses across the border going from China might not be directly um, what we would expect China to do if they're unhappy with North Korea and its testing regime. But at the same time, it is still a means to achieve a Chinese strategic interest um, that is satisfying some of the need in Beijing. So I think the amount going in from, from Beijing over that border is still going to dwarf, is still going to um, make the contribution from Russia look very um, uh, limited. Gordon Chang, you agree? I do agree because long term, uh, you look at Russia, it's a failing society. And it's not just the inability to annex Ukraine, um, but we see it across the board. So, um, you know, China right now, of course, is on the edge of uh, a number of uh, separate catastrophes. But assuming that those don't happen, and most people assume that they won't, um, then I think we have to go with the assumption that China will be a much bigger supporter of the North Korean state than Russia. Um, and that is just a long-term uh, view. Um, Russia right now has got so much more focus towards Europe than it does towards Asia. And I think that also, despite what Putin might say and what Kim Jong-un might say and what they might prefer, um, it is going to be Russia's uh, uh, attention towards Europe that is going to dominate thinking and um, planning in Moscow. And uh, Beijing is much more focused on, on East Asia, um, where North Korea, for various reasons, um, is very helpful for Chinese foreign policy. All right, so we've talked about the equation between North Korea and Russia, the equation between North Korea and China. How about between China and Russia? Russia's defense minister this Wednesday, uh, talking by video link with his new Chinese counterpart, Dong Un. 
Remarks included what sounds like, well, let's say, some call it some non-saber-rattling, saber-rattling. I stress that our actions are not aimed against third countries. Contrary to certain Western states, we don't form military alliances. I'm looking forward to the closest and most fruitful cooperation with you. I'm convinced that today's talks will help further promote the strategic partnership between Russia and China in defense. Uh, Gordon Chang, your, your re reaction listening to Sergei Shoigu. I think that China and Russia have effectively formed an alliance. Now, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, Chinese and Russian interests in the long term are contradictory and incompatible. And yes, that's true. And if we're worried uh, thinking about Chinese and Russian relations in the 2060s and the 2070s, yeah, these two countries are probably not going to be terribly good friends. But in the here and now, they are coordinating their policies. And we see this not only with China's across-the-board support for the Russian war effort in Ukraine, um, but we also see China and Russia cooperating in destabilizing societies in North Africa. You know, as someone said, um, China and Russia have identified the same adversary, basically enemy. They see common interests right now. Um, and so their foreign policies are coordinated and they're working very closely together. So in the here and now, which is what we're concerned about, um, we see China and Russia working very closely together. And I think that we just have to assume that that partnership is going to continue for quite some time. Hazel Smith, you agree? Uh, we all remember that um, the sidelines of the recent APEC summit, uh, Joe Biden and uh, uh, Xi Jinping dialing it down. Yeah, I, I think that um, in the same way that Russia and North Korea are having a, a um, I'm trying to think of a better word than transactional, a sort of fairly superficial meeting of minds since the Ukraine war. And I don't think that that's underpinned by anything substantive, either historically or geostrategically or economically. I think that's the same with China and Russia. Um, I mean, nowhere is that more is that clearer than in Russia's Far East, where Russia and China have had uh, rivalries because Russia's Far East, for, for many of your listeners, won't necessarily know the geography of Northeast Asia, but Russia's Far East is a wild place with not many major uh, ma major conurbations. Vladivostok is the, is the nearest. And Russia's been very, very concerned that, um, that, that the Chinese are going to come in politically, even with the local populations, and take over because uh, as one of your panelists has just said, actually Russia sees itself as a European power, not as a not as a not as a Far Eastern power, whereas China um, uh, is the is is the dominant power uh, up and down that region, and doesn't have much time historically, uh, or even uh, e even uh, politically. But do you agree with Gordon's posit that for now there's an alliance, and that alliance is going to grow between China and Russia? I think an alliance, um, an alliance implies common values, as say, for instance, in NATO. And so, no, I don't think that, that alliance exists. I think that they've got a strong association at the moment, but it's not based upon common values. Pierre-Antoine Deneau, an association, not an alliance? Yeah, I do agree with that. But I also agree with uh, Gordon Chang on the fact that uh, the uh, well, so-called alliance is uh, progressing uh, each day. Uh, Let's remember when uh, uh, Putin went to Beijing uh, for the uh, summer games in Beijing. Uh, uh, he was there on the, uh, for about a few days and he had a very long conversation with uh, his counterpart, Mr. Xi Jinping, for our discussion. 
And at the end of this discussion, there was a kind of a common statement which said that uh, from now on, uh, the uh, cooperation uh, between Russia and China has no limits. So that was the starting point, which uh, actually showed that uh, this is including military... But that's just talk, isn't it? No, it's more than a talk. It's, there is a common will to actually uh, counter the influence of the uh, United States uh, being in, in Europe and also in the Far East. So the, the, the long-term goal for <coughs> China is actually to control the whole of East Asia. Uh, that's a long-term goal. Uh, will they win? That's difficult to say because China is now facing immense challenges, including a terrible economic situation. So uh, what they are waiting for is actually uh, November this year, the election in the United States. If uh, Biden is elected, that would be a very bad news, both for Russia and also China. But if it's Trump, then the doors would be open for China to control a big part, a big chunk of East Asia. Uh, Hazel Smith, the November election determines what happens on the Korean Peninsula? Uh, certainly shapes, if not determines, but I, I sort of a slight different interpretation is that President Trump's position on China has not been as warm as it has been towards Mr. Putin. Um, I, I was living in, in Washington throughout a bit of the Trump administration, quite a bit of the Trump administration. Um, the, the China issue for the for Trump officials, for the people around him, um, was, it was a serious issue in terms of what they felt was a, was a, a very major the, the major strategic threat to the United States, not Russia, but China. So it would be, be difficult to, 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 to see that they would adopt uh, the, the same, the, the, a Trump administration would, would be quite as kind to, or, or as, as kindly feeling towards China uh, as it might be towards Russia. So I think there'll be a, a different, uh, you know, we're all speculating, but give, given on past Given past pronouncements when Mr. Trump was in office, um, I, I think the relationship with China will again become very rocky indeed. Catherine Jones, uh, on the Korean Peninsula, North Korea in particular, uh, who are they rooting for? I mean, I mean, it's very difficult to say um, because we might think back to the relationship between President Trump and Kim Jong-un um, was hallmarked by two massive summits, one in Singapore, one in Vietnam, probably more movement towards trying to resolve the Korean Peninsula um, issues um, than we've seen in a long time. At the same time, we think back a bit further, and we've got the exchanges at the UN General Assembly and fiery talk between them. And so it's very difficult to see what North Korea gets from a Trump administration, whether we go back to a situation where Kim Jong-un and President Trump are able to talk to each other and hold some summits and hold some discussions, or we end up with a President Biden um, moment where I, I'm told the administration has been trying to talk to North Korea consistently um, and they've been rebuffed. And I think this goes to um, uh, the point that Hazel made, which is that it's going to shape, but it might not determine, because all of these other factors that we've been speaking about, the geopolitical context, um, the relationship with Russia, the relationship more widely um, with, an, with a dissatisfied group of powers, um, 
are all going to be shaping effects. Um, one of the things that is yet to be determined is which is going to be the preeminent shaping effect that determines what happens on the Korean peninsula. Um, we haven't spoken about the state of the Chinese economy, although I noticed that Pierre and um, Gordon have mentioned the, the significant troubles in China at the moment in terms of the economic forecast. And I think more than any other factor, that's going to be leading Beijing's strategic narrative and shaping their strategic interests in both the short and the long term. Um, and so I think that gives us maybe pause for thought for thinking about how much is going to be determined by Russia, North Korea, and how long those interests are going to stay aligned um, with each other. Uh, Gordon Chang, uh, picking up on what Catherine just said, uh, which Donald Trump would it be second time around? It'd be the one who calls Kim uh, Jong-un rocket man or the one who crosses the DMZ and shakes his hand? Well, if the situation is up to uh, uh, President Trump, um, I think it's the one who walked across the DMZ um, because Trump has been made it very clear, even at times in rallies where the crowd doesn't like his North Korea policy, Trump would talk about his love letters with Kim Jong-un. So I think that that is his basic default position, that what he's trying to do is to woo the North Koreans away from China. But it might not be up to a President Trump, even if he were sitting in the Oval Office. And the reason is the situation around the world may deteriorate so far that it would not be possible for the United States to reach out to Pyongyang. So, for instance, if China motivated by internal reasons or whatever, decided to cause trouble on its periphery, you know, Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines, India, whatever, um, it very well may mean that uh, Beijing tries to use North Korea um, to create a diversion in North Asia by pressuring South Korea or Japan. And that could force uh, a Trump or Biden or whomever um, basically to take a position that North Korea is an enemy. And regardless of whether one wants to send love letters to the opposite number, um, Trump very well may not have the freedom to do that. But, but Gordon, you, 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 we've been saying in this discussion uh, how uh, the uh, North Koreans uh, are always in a precarious situation when it comes to food security. Uh, how much instability would they root for? Well, they can very well root for a lot of instability. But remember, you know, isn't that suicidal? It could very well be. Um, but remember, Kim is, I think, has less um, flexibility than he once had. And the reason is the three Kim rulers had been masters of playing Beijing off against Moscow. But with the closer relationship, whether we call it an association or whatever term we want to use um, between Moscow and Beijing, it means that Kim doesn't have the ability to do that. And if both China and Russia are in positions where they feel that everything is on the line, and that's not impossible, then they could force Kim to do things that Kim doesn't want to do, um, largely because they do have enormous leverage over the Kim rulers. As I said, they don't often tell Kim what to do. Um, and on many matters, they allow Kim to be defiant of the Chinese. But when China really wants something, they force the North Koreans to do it. And so that could be one of those situations where Xi Jinping believes he has no choice 
but to put the pressure on North Korea to do things North Korea doesn't want to do. Hazel Smith? I think I'd like to go back to your original query, which was what happens um, if President Trump comes in and how will he be towards Kim Jong-un? I don't think we can underestimate uh, that President Trump seems to be motivated sometimes by personal animus. John Bolton, who stymied the Hanoi summit, there would have been an agreement between the United States um, and North Korea if it hadn't, as, as if you read John Bolton's book, which is what he said, and I have no reason to disbelieve him, and colleagues around him saying this, there would likely have been an, a, an agreement, which I think most sensible analysts in, in the United States, uh, within the within the beltway, as they say in DC, think would, wouldn't have been a perfect agreement, but would have been better than where we are now with an expanding nuclear and missile program. Now, I think uh, President Trump would be in a position to revive that um, that uh, ag agreement and to go forward. President Trump doesn't operate, uh, as, I, I'm not saying this um, in a pejorative way because it's not my country, but um, it, it's not a, he doesn't operate foreign policy in a way which is either right or left. It seems to be that he operates that in terms of what he thinks personally he can achieve given that the gap, given that particular configuration of circumstances in which he is involved as a person. Now, the paradox about that is, as I think Catherine mentioned earlier, is that when President Trump took this position in the last administration, we were nearer to peace on the Korean Peninsula than we have been since the end of the Korean War in 1953. There, were, there was a, a deal, not a perfect deal, but an, but an achievable deal uh, on, the, on the table. And I think President Trump could come back to that. Where your uh, panellists are right, though, is that there will be all sorts of other things going on as well. President, if President Trump gets in, uh, there will be a concerted effort, I think, to weaken NATO considerably or to pull the United States out of it. And then the European nations will have to decide whether or not they're going to up their defence spending to make NATO credible without the United States being an important partner. And that will, of course, have an effect on on. Uh, on all of global international relations, not just the North Korea issue. But I think given President Trump's record so far on foreign policy, given his uh, his uh, previous track record on North Korea, it could be something, again, given all these other gives and takes, uh, given, the, given the external geopolitics uh, when after the next election, that that would certainly be a path which I would which I would envisage, given his record, that he would be interested in taking forward. And before the United States goes to the polls in November, South Korea votes in April. There's a general election there, parliamentary elections, and uh, there's apprehension on the part of the sitting president. We expect to see various provocations this year aimed at interfering in our elections, such as border area provocations, drone infiltrations, fake news, cyber attacks, and rear disturbances. Foreign security experts assess that there is a high possibility of provocation from North Korea. Catherine Jones, we've been asking uh, how much instability North Korea roots for when it comes to up those upcoming parliamentary elections. What's your thoughts? So I think North Korea would definitely try and use the levers it's got to try and influence um, the parliamentary, the legislative um, elections. And I think that clip that you've just shown um, outlining what those provocations could be um, is quite useful. I mean, one thing that I would maybe um, add is 
South Korea is quite used to dealing with provocations from the North, whether they are cyber-based attacks or others. We might see an increase in intensity of them, um, and I think that's, that's likely. Um, I don't think it will only be North Korea where we see um, some of those provocations emanating from. Um, and I think that's true of many elections around the world, that we will see, see more issues related to fake news, cyber attacks and all sorts of things. But South Korea has been living with North Korea as its neighbour and provocations for a very long time. Um, so, I, so I think North Korea might have a preference as to how they want to influence those elections. But I, I sort of have maybe an optimistic view that um, South Korea has, has lots of experience in, in that area. Right. In South Korea, the opposition arguing for a more uh, conciliatory view when it comes uh, to the North. Our government must make every effort to prevent accidental clashes from escalating into a full-scale conflict. The Yun Suk-yeol administration must immediately restore the war-preventing hotline of peace. Pierre-Antoine your first trip to North Korea dates back to the 1980s. So over time, what works better? Talking tough or what we just heard, more conciliatory noises? Well, returning to uh, what uh, Gordon Chong said uh, when he was saying that uh, Trump was uh, sending love letters to uh, Kim Jong-un, that shows that uh, uh, Trump is uh, both naive and also all the time underestimating the strengths of uh, both North Korea, Russia and also China. He doesn't really understand what geopolitics means, really, frankly. So, um, but you just heard those different clips, right, of the two Korean leaders. One uh, raising the, the uh, sounding the alarm, and the other saying we have to try to uh, try to reestablish a connection with Pyongyang. Well, at the moment, there is no way from the north to reestablish a dialogue with the south. Let's see how it's going to evolve in the in the near future. Uh, what I think is that it's not going to evolve in the right direction for the time being, for at least the coming year. Uh, again, behind the scene, I see China. And uh, the goal of China is actually uh, giving help for the Russian regime to continue uh, their war in Ukraine as long as possible. Because that gives them the opportunity of having, of having a strong ally and having this alliance I use the word alliance uh, the same as Gordon Chang used, because it is. Uh, because in the long term, again, uh, the gain from, for China will be uh, uh, having more influence in, the, in uh, Eastern Asia, and also the ultimate target is Taiwan. Taiwan is their target. They are preparing for war. It's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen in the next few years. But who knows in 10 years or 20 years what's going to happen? Hazel Smith, your thoughts ahead of, again, these, these elections that are about to take place in South Korea. Uh, what's best for the Korean Peninsula? Well, you, you've got these generational differences in South Korea in terms of their interests. You know, the, the Korean War was 1950 to 53. Um, already there are very few generations that have got direct experience of, of North Korea or of the war. So there's naturally, and, and, and South Korea is very, very globalized now, particularly young people, there's just much less interest. And as, as Catherine said earlier, 
the, the population as a whole has got used to living with these constant uh, uh, either threats or quasi-threats uh, coming from North Korea and just turns a, um, a, 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 I don't know if the right phrase is a blind eye, but a, is, 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 is not consumed by the relationship with the North in which you know, we might think that they might be, considering that all that divides North and South Korea is literally a line on the ground. Those of us that have been to the border will see it's literally a white line on the ground. Uh, and the, on both sides, that there's, there's heavy armaments. Um, uh, uh, and so that if there was a war, it, it, would, be, it, would, be, it would be millions die. Um, all the military analysis say there would be millions die, whoever won. Um, but I think that there's largely not an indifference, but a resignation. It's not really a factor, uh, I, I, unless we see a change in circumstances in the next, within the before the next elections. It's not going to be a major factor, um, in, in as it has been in the past in terms of these elections. And that that will change if if there is, um, say, there were to be some form of hostilities break breaking out on the border. But we haven't really seen that. Um, in some time, we, we've seen the terrible incidents where individuals have been have been at sea, caught in boats, and been attacked uh, by the North Koreans, by being as as potential spies. But we haven't seen we haven't seen major incidents that that have caused um, uh, that, that have caused a, a wider concern in the public in the last few years. So I don't I don't think it'll be it'll be a major issue in terms of the two approaches. Uh, we have had a strong president in South Korea who's um, taken a very strong security-centered approach um, and has put forward the idea that, look, South Korea is a separate state now. Unification is not really on the agenda in the short or medium term, if it, if it even is in the long term. That's a bit of a different approach. Than what, we saw, than what we saw in the past. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, because we're running short on time. But Hazel Smith, I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, from London. I want to thank as well Catherine Jones in St. Andrews, Gordon Chang for being with us from New York City. Uh, Pierre-Antoine Donnet, thank you for being with us here in the France 24 debate. The 51% is celebrating its 10th anniversary. Hello, I'm Annette Young and welcome to The 51%, a new show about women who are... For the past decade, we've been reporting on women who are reshaping our world. Four dedicated hosts in English, French, Arabic and Spanish. A diversity of languages and offering a variety of perspectives as we hear from those pushing for gender equality. Covering a decade of struggle, perseverance and change. The only show of its type on a global newscaster. Find it here on France 24 and France24.com. Nos vemos próximamente en France 24. A très bientôt sur France 24. Voilà, je t'arrête. Bye for now.